Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained in is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. Before we get to our show today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Miko L, Dale H, at Quick Sticks, Alan B, Randy L, Peter S, and Yoki L. We have on Steve Roman, Chairman, President, and CEO of Global Atomic Corp, and Azure Focus Uranium Developer advancing the DASA project. The company also has a non-operating interest in a zinc concentrate facility in Turkey. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol GLO and on the US OTC markets under the symbol S-Y-I-F-F. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. A pleasure to be here. So you've had some diverse time in the natural resource business going back a number of years. Take us through some of the highlights and then give us some of the key lessons you've learned over the years that really are some keys for the audience to take in. Well, just to give you a little bit of uh, my background, My father, uh, Stephen B. Roman, uh, in the 50s, discovered the world's largest uranium deposit at the time uh, and and built a town called Elliott Lake, Ontario. His company was called Denison Mines Limited, which actually still exists today. I first went underground with him when we were building Denison uh, at uh, five years of age. And it was uh, a contract with the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission uh, during the 50s that really helped finance and bring that mine into production. So uh, with with a contract to supply United States with uranium at the time, uh, he was able to go to a bank and and get bank financing to fully build out that mine and milling facility. So my introduction to mining and uranium happened uh, then in the late 50s, early 60s uh, as a young kid. And uh, when I was 19 years old, I actually started working underground as a miner in the uranium mine and uh, went through the Ontario uh, School STOPE uh, training program, received my miner's certificate, subsequently took geology at university, and um, started working uh, for Denison Mines in uh, various activities. The last job I had there was a VP of Exploration, uh, and I was involved at that time with, uh, you know, exploring worldwide uh, with, uh, you know, the focus on uranium, but also on other projects like uh, gold projects, potash projects, and coal projects. So uh, we had uh, an excellent team uh, at Denison, of course. Uh, We spent uh, a number of billions of dollars developing projects around the world. Um, One of our biggest was the big quintet coal project in northeast British Columbia, which was a $3.8 billion project involving uh, governments, uh, 55 banks, and uh, Japanese steel mills that uh, bought the coal from, from us and tech. So uh, about 1990, my father passed away in 1988. There was a lot of uh, changes at Denison Mines. Uh, The board had changed, the management changed, and uh, my division unfortunately was shut down and I went out on my own about 1990-91. And uh, the first uh, big uh, success I had was a discovery of a gold project in northwestern Ontario called Gold Eagle, and I I sold Gold Eagle uh, in late 2008, just before the financial crisis, to Gold Corp for a billion and a half dollars. And with that money and, and of course, the big wins I had with our shareholders, they financed me to go and find other and create other companies. So actually in 2005, I incorporated uh, Global Atomic Corporation, and we uh, started initially with uh, exploration uh, in Africa. So about 2007, uh, I acquired six concessions in Niger, and the reason I went to Niger is really because the permitting regime in Canada for uranium projects is 
is a very long, arduous process. Uh, while at Denison, of course, I, I went through all of that. I did exploration in Saskatchewan in the Athabasca Basin. And, uh, you know, some of our projects, for instance, Midwest took 30 years to permit and get into production. It just, you know, for me, was uh, just too long to wait. Um, so uh, Niger was just opening the doors in 2005 to foreign investment. It's a former French colony that gained independence and they really wanted to attract foreign investment. So I was in there uh, very quickly, probably one of the first companies to move into the area. Niger for, for our listeners is the fourth largest uranium producing country in the world and it supplies 30% of France's uranium. Uh, France uh, probably runs the largest, uh, you know, I mean, countrywide gets most of their power from from uh, nuclear reactors. So uh, Niger was a very important supply source for them. And of course, for the government, it's a uh, it's a main contributor to their uh, GDP. So uh, with these six concessions, we started our exploration back in 2007. Of course, we hit a, a nice uptick in the uranium prices where they went up to about a, a $130 a pound. And we raised money in the company and actually uh, started developing a couple of known prospects on those concessions. And we, we actually outlined a number of uh, millions of pounds, both at Tinigaran, uh, Daji, and Issa Cannon. But uh, then the big DASA discovery came at the end of 2010. And at that time, just prior to, of course, Fukushima happened in uh, March of 2011, uh, we managed to raise uh, with some very large players in the UK once we announced its discovery. Uh, we, we raised about $25.5 million with J.P. Morgan being the lead investor out of their UK office, as well as uh, Macquarie and uh, Investec out of South Africa. So that allowed us to really uh, focus on that DASA project and do about 100,000 meters of drilling in, in that uh, deposit to, to move it up the curve. Now, since then, of course, and you can stop me where, where you feel appropriate, Andrew, but just giving you sort of the background on the company. Uh, this was all done in a private company, so Global Atomic was private. At the same time, in 2005, I incorporated a, a base metals company called Silvermat, and we were focused on, uh, you know, finding base metal projects, uh, primarily uh, zinc and nickel. Um, so I'll get back to that one. But uh, the DASA, of course, uh, turned out to be a, a very significant uh, discovery. It's actually now uh, known as the, the largest, highest-grade uranium discovery in Africa in the last 50 years. The, uh, the ones previous <clears throat> were the ones uh, discovered by the French in a place called Arlit in Niger, where they have two operating mines, Comanac and Somer, and they've been running since about 1970-71. So really, the DASA is is something that's uh, it's uh, larger and higher grade than those deposits, and uh, you know so this is something now that we're moving through the feasibility process. In July of 2017, after a number of years of discussions with uh, with Arriva at the time it was known now it's known as Orano Mining. Uh, we signed a, an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, whereby uh, we would do uh, cooperation in, in uh, Niger and uh, they would be able to study what we'd found at DASA with the, with the idea of potentially supplying a, a source of feed to their mills in our elite. Uh, so we're about 80 kilometers south, about 50 miles south of uh, their operating mines. Right on the main highway, the infrastructure is all there. The power line that supplies those uh, two operating mines goes right over our property. So we're, we're in an excellent location. 
Uh, and similar to Saskatchewan, you know, there's a number of deposits that typically would feed a centralized mill. This is the way we see the DASA developing. So we have three mills uh, within 100 kilometers of us currently, all the infrastructure there. And uh, we don't really foresee the need to spend the capital and build our own mill at this point. Uh, we, we should be able to just... Uh, mine via open pit and ship or directly to any one of those mills or or all three of them for that matter so right now these this this is developing uh with the idea of supplying ore to arano at least to one mill potentially both and um, so that's what we're working on now we've just uh, released in the last week some additional drill results from 2018 and we are now doing a new updated resource and a new mine plan, which will be all incorporated into the feasibility study, which will be focused on uh, basically a mining and trucking operation. Okay. Well, I appreciate the uh, extensive uh, background and, and coverage there. You, you covered a lot of points and things. I want to go back for a moment before we talk about global atomic specifically. I want to go back... Uh, to your old man, what would you yes. say that he provided you with with some skills and lessons when you were going through your early stage experience in the mining business and specifically with uranium? Well, he was a, a, a tremendous entrepreneur and a very savvy businessman. Uh, he, uh, you know, he just had that uh, that that knack. Uh, and he knew how to make deals and make money. Um, he was an immigrant from Slovakia that uh, came here just prior to World War II. Then he tried to to get back to uh, basically fight the Germans uh, during the war, but uh, he ended up in a munitions plant here, and he just started prospecting as a young man and ended up finding that big deposit, developing it, effectively on his own without losing control of it and building up a tremendous uh, large organization that was involved with uh, many different businesses aside from mining. Um, now, having grown up in that environment, of course, uh, you know, he had to work for everything he had. He, he didn't give me anything except, uh, you know, a job if I wanted it. But, uh, you know, he, he always told me that if you want to make money, you have to earn it yourself. Of course, I was a very interested in, in the outdoors, in mining, in prospecting. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's in the blood. Uh, you know, his father, my grandfather, actually came through Ellis Island uh, three times uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s to uh, work in the coal mines in Pennsylvania and and Ohio, and he would stay for years, ship money home, and then go back home for a visit and come back. So I think that the mining is in the blood. And, uh, of course, uh, the fact that uh, he was a, a hard taskmaster and uh, didn't give me anything except uh, as a, a job, as I mentioned, you know, uh, he basically said, listen, uh, if you want to learn the business, start at the bottom. So that's where I started in the in the mines as a miner, and uh, and basically progressed up through the ranks uh, into engineering, uh, mine development, uh, sales of product. I mean the whole the whole gambit from you know soup to nuts. This was all learned uh, firsthand uh, by doing the job. So uh, you know I. I I didn't learn it in school as much as I learned it actually doing it. Yes, yes, and I, th I think that's the prevailing point and, and a great history you provided and, and uh, it's so much uh, how, how much key experience is on the ground doing stuff rather than reading out of a textbook. I think it's a, a key point that you bring up. Um, so we won't talk too much about Gold Eagle, but great timing on that. Uh, but. Talk to us just briefly about another subject, and I know you still have an appetite. Obviously, you're still in Canada doing some things, and you have an appetite there. But for our audience that uh, is probably unfamiliar, go back and tell us about your role in the Volta Grande deposit in Brazil, and tell us your thoughts on if that project will get advanced. 
So I uh, started a company here and took it public. It was a private Brazilian company. I took it public here in Canada um, and put it on the Toronto Venture Exchange, uh, similar to where Global is now. Um, and it was called Verena Minerals. And uh, Verena was involved in exploring quite a few different properties in Brazil. And the Volta Grand property uh, came to my attention. Oh, it's... Uh, 10 years plus ago, but uh, it, it had uh, a lot of uh, sort of local uh, garimpero type workings on the property, but it had never been explored. So we picked it up and uh, started working on it and uh, started developing a resource. And so uh, when I uh, moved this thing along from basically a startup situation to about 2 million ounces, we figured that, uh, you know, there was still a lot of exploration to do on the property. And uh, at that time, of course, we made a deal with a fellow named Stan Barty, who had just taken over, I believe it was Anglo-Americans uh, Brazilian mining operation and and had a full complement of a very qualified mine development people situated in Brazil headed up by a guy named Peter Tagliamonte, who is now running Bello Sun, which is the new name for Verena. And uh, there was a big fundraising at the time when we made that whole deal and took on this new management team. And with the additional capital, of course, they drilled off about a 10 million ounce uh, resource on the property of which now there's a feasibility study on uh, a large portion of that. Now, this, this project was located on the Shingu River, which is a uh, tributary of the Amazon, in in thick uh, jungle. So, uh, you know, when we were working there, there was, uh, you know, we had a camp established there. We had a lot of people working on site. And what really got the whole thing moving ahead was uh, that the Brazilian government decided to build a, a large dam, a power dam, I think 11,000 megawatt uh, project, uh, just down the road from us, not too far from a town called Altamira. So that really opened up the whole area and brought in infrastructure, et cetera. So that, that really excited everybody, the fact that, okay, with this, with this going on here, better infrastructure, more people in the area, this mine is going to go ahead. Uh, the, 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 uh, the feeling right now is that, obviously, uh, this will be a mine. I mean, there's a big resource there. There's a lot of high grade there. Uh, infrastructure challenges and location was was something to worry about in the early days but it's really not now i think it's all boiling down to political will at this point and of course in latin america sometimes it takes a long time to get people on side uh, it's maybe a little bit like permitting in canada you always have some new angle coming at you whether it's indigenous uh, issues or uh you know in in brazil maybe they have to uh have uh, certain politicians on side to uh give you approvals but as far as i'm concerned the mine will go ahead and uh, it's just a matter of time till they get all their permits so that they can move it ahead Bello Sun, uh, you know, would like to have potentially a, a senior partner or somebody that could provide some more financial horsepower for the development. But I think they've got some options now on starting with a smaller sized operation. It's not going to take a lot of capital. And that's what I would recommend. You know, like I, I wouldn't wait for some big guy to come there. I know Agnico Eagle was there with a position at one time. But I believe they've sold their position in the meantime. Um, I think they should start small and, and just do uh, what we've just presently done at HeartGold, another company that I've developed here in Canada, uh, is to start a small mine, high grade, start generating cash flow and expand your operations subsequently. I mean, you don't have to go in there with, with the multi hundred millions of dollars project. 
start with something that's, you know, in the 100 to 200 million range that a smaller company can actually finance. Yeah, I agree. I think there's some some key points you brought up there, and I appreciate the the background on that project and and how it's coming together. So I want to move uh, kind of to broad uranium market for just a moment before we go back over to Niger. Um, what are the key things in your mind that needs to go in place at this point for the uranium price to kind of start moving higher? Well, I I think uh, you know obviously the big guys like the Kazakhs and uh, Cameco have curtailed some production, uh, dried up some of the market. I think uh, you know utilities really have to get back into the market and start uh, you know signing up some ten-year contracts like they did in the past. I think you know the price has been so low, everybody's just been nipping away at the spot market and trying to accumulate. There's been a lot of uh, refined uh, processed uranium on the market. There was too many refiners out there dumping too much product. I think some of those are are shutting down. That's going to dry that market up a bit. And, of course, the big driver is going to be the continued development of nuclear power plants in China and India, I would say, particularly over the next few years. Um, you know, and there's other other places in the world now, like Saudi Arabia, uh, that are building a number of reactors that nobody expected. And you know, people are realizing that uh, you know, particularly the Saudis, uh, why use up all their oil to to uh, you know develop their country when they can build a reactor, they can uh, produce water for irrigating their land and uh, make it a more livable environment uh, without uh, chewing up their main natural resource. So, right. you know, I think, I think uh, you know, just the, the scale of the amount of reactors that are being built here over the next 10 to, to 20 years, I mean, the fleet's going to uh, the double in size. Right. Yeah, I think those are some key points. And, um, let me ask you this. You mentioned contracting for a moment. Uh, looking at the U.S. and European utilities, what's your thoughts on when the U.S. and European utilities will start to move into the market? Do you see that happening kind of at the same time? And do you see them both kind of hanging out? Obviously, we know we got to get 232 out of the way. But after that happens, uh, how do you see European and U.S. utilities coming into the market? And, and when do you think that might start? Well, that's a good question, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so far, they've been pretty fickle, and they haven't really shown their hand as far as when they want to get back into the market. We know France is, uh, you know, is is trying to develop a couple of projects, and uh, they're they're going to need to buy uranium. Some countries have decided that they're going to uh, slow down on their nuclear development, but at the end of the day, everybody's promoting the fact that it's the only solid uh, base load carbon free energy source and i think more people are going to start getting on board with that um i i think probably it's going to be another year or two before you really see big movement in the market uh from utilities uh, but that's just my opinion i think that seems to be that we're we're lining pretty good with uh same dates uh that you're coming up with there i think we're pretty pretty close, but maybe have a couple more years uh, out there to be conservative. So let's get to, uh, let's go back to Niger. You've got kind of one major competing country to Niger in Africa for uranium export, and that's Namibia. What's, what's your thoughts on Niger versus Namibia in terms of jurisdiction? Do you like them both? Is there one you like better? Well, Namibia, I think, is a, is a good place to operate. Um, I think uh, Niger, um, of course, has better deposits. So uh, Namibia's deposits uh, typically are very low grade. They're going to require a lot higher uranium cost to actually make money there. Uh, you know, our project, DASA, particularly with the grades we have, can make money today. Uh, we don't need to wait for 40 or $50 a pound uranium. 
So from that point of view, uh, you know, Niger has got a, a very good uh, mining code. They've got a good tax regime. Uranium is their number one GDP revenue source. So they're very proactive trying to develop more uranium projects in the country. Uh, Namibia, I'm not entirely sure what other uh, sources of revenue they have in the country, but I think uranium is obviously one of the big ones. But it's just the uh, quality of the deposits in, in Niger are better. So let's get to Global Atomic. Uh, give us kind of a snapshot briefly of the management team, uh, the capital structure, uh, maybe some key insider uh, ownership. And then uh, lastly, how management is aligning themselves with that of the shareholders today? Okay, well, I started the company uh, with the ex-president of Denison Mines, uh, Clifford Frame, in 2005, as I mentioned. And, uh, you know, we basically seeded up the, the initial company and started doing the exploration in Niger. And uh, so from a from an alignment with shareholders, uh, basically, I've, I've uh, put my own money into the deal from day one and participated in uh you know every financing going forward <clears throat> so we're we're totally aligned uh i'm probably the largest shareholder of the company with uh just around 10% right now clifford is probably second after me and uh then a couple of institutions in there like jp morgan uh, and i don't know about macquarie and investec right now whether they still have their shares or not but you know uh really the shareholders uh initially were all the management and of course uh our other key guy uh, mr george flack our vp exploration he's also a director he's been involved since day one uh, has his own money in the deal. So as far as, uh, you know, participating and having skin in the game, we're all there. Uh, management team, we have uh, some some exceptionally good people uh, involved with us on the director as directors, uh, the ex-COO uh, and president of uh, Iron Ore Company of Canada, Derek Rantz. He's a South African mining engineer uh, MBA. We've got uh, a fellow named Richard uh, Fauché, who used to be uh, involved uh, running projects for Falcon Bridge. Um, he ran their operations in Dominican Republic. We've got uh, a guy named Paul Cronin, who used to be running a company, a uranium company called Anatolia in Turkey that got bought out by a U.S. group. Um, you know, all all people that are either uh, mining engineers, geologists, metallurgists, or uh, financial uh, people that were involved, uh, like Paul was uh, head of mining at the Rand Merchant Bank, uh, and that's where we met initially. Uh, he really liked the DASA project, and he eventually uh, came on as a director. So. You know, I think to answer your question, our, our management team is uh, is excellent. We've got a new guy we hired as executive VP, uh, Merlin Marr Johnson in London, England. Uh, Merlin used to be with HSBC. He was involved with a number of uh, companies running them as a CEO. Uh, he just joined us in the last few months. So, of course, a lot of our big shareholders are based in London. Most of our financing came out of London. Uh, they they seem to have an affinity to African projects, whereas, you know, in North America, we typically like to go north-south, and people like uh, Canadian, American, and South American projects. In the UK, uh, they like African projects, so uh, there's always a big interest out of out of London. So we have a representative there now. We have an office there. And we expect that as we move this forward, we're going to have uh, more interest coming out of that market. So back around May 2018, there was some attempts to clear out the management team by some shareholders. Tell us how that got resolved. And is the current shareholder roster in support of company management and the direction of the company? Well, that that uh, there was a couple of people that were involved in our in our zinc business. So uh, you mentioned that uh, we have a zinc component. So the way that came about is I started a company also in 2005 called Silvermet, as I mentioned, 
And we ended up uh, during the depths of the financial crisis, uh, end of 2008, buying a shutdown plant in Iskenderun, Turkey, which uh, used to uh, reprocess electric arc furnace dust. It's a waste coming out of electric arc furnaces that contains a lot of zinc. And it's a big uh, kiln. It looks like a cement plant. It's uh, got a 55 meter long or about 60 yard long kiln that uh, basically cooks this uh, this waste and volatilizes the zinc. And then we condense it and we turn it into a high grade 70% zinc concentrate that's sold to smelters. So we had that business going we basically turned the plant around, refinanced it, cleaned it up, and it's been making money since 2009. Now, since that wasn't one of our primary businesses, we, we made a deal with the biggest group in the world called Befeza Zinc. They were a Spanish company, uh, part of the Abengoa group. Now they're trading on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. I think they have about a billion and a half uh, market value. So we brought them in there and sold them a 51% interest in that project. Uh, they wanted to get into Turkey. They could see doing a deal with us was a very quick way for them to get into that market. <clears throat> They're the biggest in the world. They operate a number of plants in Europe and Asia. And uh, so they are now the operator of that project. And so what we did, since we weren't really getting a lot of uh, love in the market, nobody really knows too much about uh about the recycling business, and it's not that sexy from a point of view of market, but from a point of view of making money, they make money. So what we right. did is we took that company, Silvermet, which was public, and we merged it with Global Atomic, which was private. Now, of course, we polled shareholders to see what they'd think about that idea prior to doing it. All the shareholders were in favor. They wanted to have uh, liquidity of the global shares. They thought that a new great high-grade uranium project would also enhance the value of their SilverMet shares. So everybody wanted to go ahead and do that. And, of course, there was a lot of cross-pollination, so to speak. There were SilverMet shareholders that were global shareholders and global that were SilverMet shareholders. So it made a lot of sense to do the combination take the whole thing public. But then at the 11th hour, of course, a couple of shareholders decided, well, they just want us to uh, dividend all the cash out of the zinc company on a continual basis, and they decided they don't want to do a, a combination. So they voted against it and tried to put in a new slate of directors and scuttled the deal at the at the last minute. So, of course, we we had an annual meeting and the whole thing went to vote. Uh, these these uh, groups, uh, there was two groups uh, particularly, were uh, were basically uh, totally eliminated. Their their votes uh, were were washed out by all of the people voting in favor, and they've since disappeared. So uh, we've asked them whether they wanted to sell their shares. Um, they so so far, as far as I know, uh, still own their shares, but uh, they they realize at this point that it's a futile exercise to try to uh, change the course of the company. Right. Yeah, and I I think at this point, at these uh, market levels and these sentiment levels, it it doesn't make much sense either. So they they better just uh, probably stick with it and and uh, draw on your uh, management team to to create value going forward. I think that makes the most sense at this point. And at these levels, uh, I'm sure that that probably <laughs> makes the most sense across the board. So, well, you know what? At the time when they did it, too, they, uh, you know, everybody, of course, read all the material, but they had no plan. All they wanted to do was scuttle the deal and dividend all the cash flow out of our zinc operation to themselves. Uh, so, you know, everybody said, well, what kind of a plan is that? So they, they you know, they basically just didn't vote for it. So how how do you see zinc prices over the next couple of years, and what's your view on the current zinc supply levels? Well, you know, a number of large zinc operations uh, have shut down, so you know that that's really created a bit of a a deficit in the zinc market, and you can see with zinc prices now uh, about a dollar thirty-five a pound, 
that, uh, you know, it's in a very favorable position. Um, you know, I think uh, there there is obviously some additional zinc uh, production that will come on stream at these kinds of prices. But I think we're going to have a pretty decent price level here north of a dollar for a number of years going forward. The, uh, the other big uh, input that I think people need to understand is that uh, zinc is used primarily for galvanization. Um, there's a lot of uh, galvanizing uh, going on now with, uh, with steel production in China, so they're using more zinc. Uh, the other big impact on zinc is now uh, people realize that a lot of soil in North America is being depleted of zinc. So we grow a lot of corn in Canada and the United States. That really depletes the soil. And they're finding that the zinc addition to the soil is actually uh, uh, you know, strengthening the soil and the growing characteristics of the soil. So you know, people uh, wouldn't think normally of throwing zinc on the field, but uh, they're doing so. And, uh, you know, that's using up a lot of zinc. So, you know, I think from a point of view of supply, the supply is limited, uh, but demand is growing. So I, I think that zinc's pricing is going to stay quite strong for the next little while. Yeah, I, I see that there are some interesting things coming out of that, specifically on the agriculture side that you mentioned. Um, so a little bit more on the zinc for a moment. So you guys have that asset you guys are receiving money from that asset. What's your thoughts on on how that goes forward? Uh, is there a desire in the company to potentially sell that asset if the price is right, or just continue to kind of collect, 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 and and that really the aggregate of that collection over time is better? What do you see there? You know, clearly our our partner uh, Bethesda uh, would would like to buy our forty nine percent at some point. Um, you know, at this point in time, they've got uh, other operations they're really focused on as far as, you know, growing, for instance, uh, their expansion in, in Asia. I think, you know, for the moment and for the foreseeable future, as the fact that we're, we're doubling the size of our Turkish operation currently, uh, you'll see some news coming out on that fairly soon. But, uh, you know, the market, I think, is aware that uh, we're modernizing and, and uh, increasing the size of our plant there. So, you know, if zinc prices stay where they are, that's going to kick out a very significant revenue stream to uh, Global Atomic, which really underpins the development of the DASA uranium project. So, you know, I, I don't think we actually ever have to come back to the market uh to develop the dasa project um so you know our share capital right now we have and you asked that question we have about 140 million shares outstanding um which is you know i would say fairly tightly controlled with uh management directors and friends probably have in the 30 40 for 30 to 40% range of, of that share capital the rest is you know, some institutions like J.P. Morgan are in there, uh, but the rest is, is smaller retail. Uh, you know, we, we don't really foresee uh, having to issue more shares with that cash flowing asset uh, that could uh, supply sufficient capital to develop the DASA project. Now, with our deal with, uh, with Orano Mining, you know, if we just start a, a basic open pit and a shipping operation, we don't need a lot of capital to get a get a mine going. Right. Um, and with those with those revenue streams, so we have a revenue stream coming from zinc. We have a revenue stream coming from uranium. You know, as far as I'm concerned, as a as a big shareholder, I'd like to start uh, paying dividends to our shareholders. So. You know, I think the company should uh, have an aggressive dividend policy and start uh, sharing the, those profits with our shareholders. Okay. So on the zinc, so you mentioned the expansion. Uh, can you give us right now, with with as it stands today and also when the expansion is complete, uh, give us the thoughts on, on how that expansion is financed uh, if there is no issue with uh, 
we can do that with existing capital. And then also give us the all-in cost of that facility now. Uh, what do you need uh, per pound zinc to uh, to make sure that uh, we're break even at this point? Okay. Um, <clears throat> right now we've got a plant that's that's uh, basically designed for about 30 million pounds of zinc production annually, uh, about uh, 50 to 60,000 tons of uh, throughput capacity of, of electric arc furnace dust. The new plant uh, will be able to treat uh, between 110 and 120,000 tons a year of furnace dust, producing about 60 million pounds a year. The current plant, I would say, uh, our costs there um, are probably in the 45 cent range. You know, that would, wouldn't include smelting charges, but uh, smelting costs have been coming down as, as there's less and less zinc available. The new plant should drop that, I would say, down to probably in the 30 cent range. So you can see if the zinc price is up at $1.30, which it currently is, $1.35, you, you've got a tremendous margin there for shareholders. And what's the what's the expansion cost to global and uh, after yeah, that expansion? So the, okay, okay, sorry, I forgot that one. Uh, the the new plant costs twenty six million U.S. So of course we we pay forty nine percent and Bethesda pays fifty one. This is all being funded through our own cash flow. So uh, we paid a dividend out to the company which we used to finish the drilling in twenty eighteen for the DASA, but all of 2018's cash flow has uh, been set aside to build the plant. So between our own cash flow and existing credit lines that we have in Turkey, uh, we are fully funded on that project. Okay, excellent. Um, and after that is completed, uh, is there any ongoing day-to-day -day costs or operations that Global has to contribute to uh, once that goes? I mean, is, is it a, just a true 49% or how's that work? Yeah, it's a true 49%. Uh, you know, we have a very good relation with Bethesda. We have uh, monthly meetings. Um, so, no, we, uh, we, we of course, uh, produce the zinc concentrate in Turkey. It's loaded uh, right at our own dock, effectively. Uh, we're right... Uh, mixed in with two steel mills in Iskenderun right on tidewater. So we load we load containers and ship the material to uh, Europe. Uh, Glencore and Nearstar are our two biggest clients there. And of course, they pay us in U.S. dollars uh, in Europe. So then we have to send uh, sufficient uh, working capital back to Turkey to keep operations running. But effectively, all of the cash flow is is in US dollars outside of Turkey. Great. So let's move on. Let's let's focus down on DASA for a moment and and as you're uh so you've got kind of a few a few peer companies uh, specifically kind of one there in Niger uh, in Goviex. What would you say is better about Global Atomic and and what negative things to, do you see with the deposit? and positive things as compared to the peers. I know you mentioned grade, but maybe give us kind of a flavor for why you think uh, the DASA project is really kind of the key project in Niger. Well, size and grade, really, uh, Andrew. I mean, uh, the DASA project, the mineralization starts on surface. Through our drill programs here in the last year, uh, we've discovered this area we call the flank zone, which is uh, just below surface. Uh, it's very high grade. Uh, below the flank zone, we have, uh, you know, a number of other zones. In, in funny enough, uh, in Niger, there's never been a uranium deposit found in, in three different uh, horizons, being the Carboniferous, Jurassic, and Triassic. Uh, we, we've got mineralization in all of those and uh, we've now traced it down to about 800 meters below surface. So this is something uh, that could create uh, an open pit that's, uh, you know, three or four kilometers long and and two to three kilometers wide. I mean, this, this is a significant uh, plus 200 million pound deposit. There's just not too many animals like that right now in the world. Um, the grades, of course... Um, 
We put out a press release this week. We've hit some exceptional grades, uh, even some that are grading over 20% uranium. These are these are as good uh, a grade as you find in the high-grade deposits in Saskatchewan. Frankly, uh, one of our people that work with us, and I didn't mention him when we were talking about personnel, but we've got an ex-Ariva fellow. His name is Dr. Peter Wollenberg, and he was the head of exploration uh, for Ariva in North America, and he discovered the big... Uh, gigavic deposit in in northwest territories so he's part of the the global atomic team now and he presented at the prospectors convention here in march and he said this this is the biggest highest grade sandstone hosted deposit in the world so there there's really uh you know goviex uh, has done a lot of work on their Matuela deposit it's more of an underground target from what i understand uh they could have some open pitable material but the grades are nowhere near as high as what we have the deposit uh, underground uh, has been mined i think in the past it was an old they, they had a test test mining program there it's it's quite thin the seam that the uranium is in so it's it's not it just can't compare to what we have at dasa and you know uh, govx is working hard to get their project going they have some some other elements mixed with the uranium they need a much higher price to get that project going i think they're in the 70 to 80 dollar range whereas we could we could start mining right now well, I appreciate the uh, the perspective on that. Um, let's talk about the letter of intent or the, the, the MOU you have with Orano. That's not quite uh, 100% in concrete yet. Give us kind of what will be paid to Orano for processing at their facilities and what is the kind of the limit of the responsibility once the material arrives at their facility or, or how does that kind of work? And then does Global retain 100% ownership of the DASA project, or do you see some kind of a JV coming out of this MOU with Orano? No, uh, we, we retain 100% of the project, and the MOU basically specifies that they will buy the rock. So they will pay us for the uranium in the rock based on spot price. So we are still working out the details on, uh, you know, whether they're going to pick it up at our mine gate or we drop it at their mine gate. They know what their operating costs are. And what we have to figure out is how much it's going to cost us to mine the material and truck it to their site. So, you know, in rough numbers, the way we've calculated this is we don't think it's going to cost more than 8 to $10 a pound for them to process that material. Our mining and trucking shouldn't be more than $10. So for $20 all in, we would uh, be able to mine and deliver material to their mill. Uh, uranium price, you know, at the 26 to $30 level would give us a margin of, you know, 6 to $10 uh, per pound. So uh, depending on the tonnage we supply, now the MOU contemplates a minimum of 100,000 tons delivered to their plant uh, per year for a minimum of five years at a minimum grade of 1,000 ppm parts per million. So, of course, uh, we anticipate that as we move forward here, we'll be able to announce definitively how many tons we'll be delivering, uh, what the grade will be, and what the costs are going to be. So, right now, we're working on all of that. We're going to be putting it into a, a final feasibility study because we need that in order to get our mining license. In Niger, compared to Canada, a mining license, once you have your feasibility done and your environmental impact statement done, takes four to six months to get your mining license. So we expect we'll have that feasibility with all the right inputs, all the right numbers plugged in by, let's say, the end of Q1. Uh, by the end of uh, Q3 next year, we should have our mining license. We can actually start moving dirt you know, by the end of next year. Give us a, uh, a time frame on when that uh, MOU will, will become uh, in concrete. Do you have an idea on when that might get resolved? I, I think in the next three months, we should have all of those issues resolved. 
but not really resolved, but, you know, the final, final I's dotted, T's crossed, how many tons do they want, uh, where do they want it, uh, what's their process cost going to be, and then we, we need to have those numbers so we can plug it into our feasibility model. Clearly, we're not going to ship ore unless we can make money. So that's the bottom line. So if they need ore, their their mines are, you know, depleted or near depleted. They need to keep all of those things going. They've got a lot of employees up there. So, you know, I would say, generally speaking, uh, it should be a, a situation where it's, it's beneficial to both companies. Okay. And when you look at the processing costs, when you guys get that determined, uh, how does the processing costs over there at their mill uh, come in when you guys evaluate maybe a future plan to potentially build infrastructure and, and build stuff at the project, depending on how big that project gets? Do you see that their processing costs would be in line with what you guys are envisioning perhaps in the future? Well, you know what? As I mentioned earlier, we have three mills within 100 kilometers of our mine. So, you know, I think it would have to be something quite significant for for a company like Global Atomic to decide, well, they're not going to feed these mills on some toll arrangement and build their own mill and spend, you know, three or four hundred million dollars doing that. Uh, it would have to be something that would be substantially lower, I would say, to uh, to take on the risk of building your own plant. So I, okay. I, I just I just think that that's something that could be, you know, out in the future, depending on what the uranium price is doing. I don't think anybody out there seems to think uranium is is really gonna, you know, go back up to a hundred dollars a pound. I think you know, thought is generally speaking, uh, forty to fifty dollars a pound, which would which would keep a lot of low grade projects off the market. You know, uh, Cameco, I think, mentioned uh, here during PDAC that, you know, they wouldn't contemplate bringing MacArthur River back online unless prices were around $40 a pound. But, you know, if people start like Cameco and the Kazakhs start bringing on additional production at $40, that's great for us, but it's not good for a lot of low-grade projects that I don't think are going to make it. And do you see with uh, uranium coming back at, at $45, $50, a pound, do you see that that is a price that can sustain the uh, more or less bottleneck and, and deficit of, of uh, supply that would be starting to occur when the utilities recontract? Do you think that uh, there's enough supply there to really meet all the world demand at that price level? Or do you believe that there's really a price higher than that that really gets enough supply into the market, given, of course, all the time it takes to get there. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think if prices were up at the 40 to $50 range, there would be enough uh, decent uh, higher-grade projects that come back online or, or start up uh, to supply the market. I think the reactors are becoming more efficient. I think they're using less fuel. I think there's the potential to recycle some of these uh, fuels that have been in uh, storage, uh, water underwater storage for the last 20 or 30 years, there's going to be there's going to be some addition to supply with some of this kind of recycling. I don't think we're going to need uh, vast quantities of new uranium coming on stream, but I think, of course. You know, uh, there's going to be that base supply that's going to be required. I think right now, current reactor fleets are probably uh, using between 180 and 200 million pounds a year with, uh, you know, with the substantial more reactors that could go up to, uh, you know, three to 400 million pounds a year. But, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, Cameco, Kazakhstan, uh, Russian production, etc., they're going to be able to uh, uh, fill a lot of the void. If the uh, if the deal with Orano for some reason doesn't materialize, Steve, what do you think the backup route would be? Well, if it doesn't materialize, uh, we have one other very well, actually, a couple of players in Niger. Uh, the Russians are there. They've uh, they've approached us because they have a low grade deposit there. 
I, I know they're looking for uranium deposits in uh, in Niger. So are the Indians, and uh, the Chinese have a plant in a place called Azalik, which is one of the three that I spoke to you about. And the Chinese are definitely looking for more uranium supply. So, you know, I think we have other options uh, if Orano doesn't pan out. But, uh, you know, I think uh, I think we'll do well regardless uh, of, of Orano or, or no Orano. So talk to us about uh, Niger taxes for a moment. Give us an overview of the of the 10% interest, uh, the income tax rate, and, and the sliding scale royalties. How does that kind of figure into this type of scenario and, and your total cost? So it, when you go f and you receive your mining license in Niger, you have to form a new uranium company, a new mining company, a new mining entity. So it would be called uh, DASA Mining Corporation. Um, the government gets 10% uh, of the shares of that mining company. So they don't actually have an interest in the project. They have an interest in the shares of the mining company, which I guess is probably about the same thing. But uh, And they have the option to actually, uh, by funding pro rata their share, uh, go up to a 40% interest. So basically, Global Atomic would have 60% of the mining company at that point. The government would have 40%. Now, this is typically not the way they operate. Uh, they do have... A, a large interest in the Comanac project. I think they're around 30%. You know, initially they start with 10. The The tax rate is a 30% corporate tax. Uh, you get a three-year tax holiday. You, you don't pay VAT on anything you're bringing into the country to develop your mining project. And then there's a sliding scale royalty that goes from 5% to 12% based on profitability. So if, you know, if your project uh, makes a 20% profit, you're sort of at uh, 5%. And if it if it runs up to a 50% profit, then you're going to be paying a 12% royalty. So it's a sliding scale based on profitability. And that's, of course, after you get all your capital back, et cetera, et cetera. It's a fair and reasonable uh, tax regime that they have in Niger. You know, if projects are marginal, let's say, uh, you can negotiate your tax regime with the government there. And, uh, you know, they will try to uh, tailor the taxes to benefit the project and create jobs. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And at least the royalty is not coming off the revenue top line. So that's that's, that's, that's correct. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So, so, uh, so going back to Global Atomic and, and, and strategy uh, going forward, do you see the, the company as, as a potential a buyout in the future? Uh, or do you really see that there's a desire to, to seek out this, uh, you know, strategy of, of hauling ore to Orano and, and kind of uh, really becoming a producer uh, in this sector and, and kind of just hanging out for the new cycle? Well, you know what, Andrew? Uh, I come from a mining background, and of course, uranium mining is what we were mining most of my years. I, I think it's very exciting to put the mine into production and start the shipments. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, if somebody comes uh, in the door and wants to buy the whole company, uh, you have to go to shareholders if it's a reasonable offer and, and show it to them. So, you know, we were building the Gold Eagle project. We'd already ordered uh, equipment for the shaft, etc. when Gold Corp came in the door and, and decided they wanted to buy this thing. So, you know what? You have to take each project, each uh, issue day by day as far as, as that goes. Uh, we know that the project is starting to uh, get a lot of interest from uh, various parties and including the French and the Chinese and the Russians. Um, so at this point in time, we're here to develop the project. We have an excellent project uh, running in Turkey. Uh, the new plant will be coming on stream this fall. So, you know, as far as I can see, we're going to build a really nice cash flowing uh, machine here. Uh, and we want to share that with the shareholders. So, Steve, you've been around in the business for quite a while. Are there any other people or companies you'd like to mention that are notable for people 
uh, the audience to look into uh, specifically in either the natural resource sector or the uranium sector at this point? Well, there's actually, uh, you know, quite a few out there, Andrew. I don't know where you would start to sort of picking and choosing which company you want to talk about. But, yeah, I, I mean, I'd rather stick to to what I know here and, and just talk about global, I think. How about how about in the sector? How about for uranium in the sector? Uh, people that are not part of companies per se that are listed. How about how about any? Is there any veterans or good knowledge bases that you have found uh, throughout your years in this business that uh, is good good for information? Well, I would have to say Cameco. I mean, if in the uranium sector, Cameco are you know the biggest in the world, and uh, of course their main production is here in Canada. They're well-established. Uh, I'm a shareholder of Cameco. I have been for a long time. Uh, they've got some fantastic projects. They're high-grade. They've got good management. Uh, the Kazakhs, Kazatomprom, recently went public uh, in London. So that might be something. Uh, I mean, those those two uh, big producers, uh, I think if you're owning uranium, you got to own a bit of those. Uh, Cameco also pays a dividend currently. So... You know, those would be the ones that I'd probably focus on. Some of the others that have been out there promoting, uh, you know, their their projects are marginal in my estimation. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if I want to uh, really start mentioning any names because, you know, everybody has to move their projects forward the way they see fit. And, and I don't like poo-pooing on anybody's project. Sure. Well, tell us tell us for just one sec as well. I want to ask you this. Uh, going back to Athabasca Basin, you know this area quite well. Um, what's your thoughts on the, the uranium projects there and some of the players uh, and, and kind of compare it to why, just, just give investors a flavor one more time, why you think Niger is so much superior in your view and your style as compared to kind of hanging around in, in Athabasca Basin? Well, um, I am a shareholder of two companies in Athabasca uh, on top of Cameco. As one is Fission and one is NextGen. Now, both of those companies, of course, have uh, found some fantastic deposits there. The issue with, with Canada and the Athabasca is the permitting timeline. So if, if you uh, are a young fellow of 25 years and you don't mind waiting for 20 years to get your mining permit, then it's, it's great. But, uh, you know, I'm an old guy that's been around for a long time, and I just like moving projects ahead a little bit faster than what the Canadian bureaucrats do. So uh, I was very happy to uh, go to Niger and work there. I've been working in West Africa since 1985, developing various projects. So I, I had no issues uh, going to Africa and finding something good that could actually be permitted during this uranium cycle. I don't know, frankly, whether even next-gen or fission will be permitted during this uranium cycle. I think that's very important for people to uh, to do their due diligence on it. I know that uh, these companies have promoted, been promoting the fact that they can get their permits uh, you know, within five to seven years. But I just built a gold project in Ontario, and it took me seven years to permit a gold project. And now uranium uranium is a whole different bailiwick in Canada. It comes under much more scrutiny. There's more public consultation, and it just it takes a long time. It's very frustrating. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I hope for the sake of uh, shareholders, as I'm one of the shareholders of next gen and fission that they can move things quickly but uh i'm i'm concerned uh, if we have a good uranium cycle here for the next few years uh they may miss the cycle before they get their permit yeah i think it sounds sounds a little bit like a headache and, and certainly quite a bit of gray and white hair coming out of that and and uh we're going to build a watch and, and see how this goes as the cycle plays out so why should investors be taking a stake in Global Atomic today? What would you say to potential investors listening? Well, I'd say, first of all, uh, we have a, a world-class Tier 1 project in a jurisdiction that allows uranium mining. It's their number one revenue source, a very quick permitting uh, regime, very skilled workforce uh, in the uranium sector in Niger. 
you know, their mines have been running there since 1970, 71. So we've got all the components here for a very successful operation. We've got three mills in the area, all the infrastructure is there. But I think potential investors need to realize that we are actually a profitable company. So uh, we are generating profits from our zinc operation that's really underpinning the development of this, you know, uh, billion-dollar asset. We have a current market cap of about uh, $60 million Canadian dollars, so like 45 or $50 million U.S. dollars. The, the NPV at, uh, you know, like eight times EBITDA just on our on our zinc project is is a hundred million and we're trading at below that so you really get the uranium asset for free so how can potential investors reach out to the company for more information well we have a website number one triple w dot global atomic corp dot com or uh, you know send me an email at sgr at globalatomiccorp.com and uh, you know we'll answer questions steve we really appreciate the time and we look forward to watching global atomic going forward thank you andrew it was a pleasure